that card, fill out the information, check the box that says it's your first time, include your email. We won't bug you or call you or anything like that. But if you have questions about certain ministries, on the back of that card, you can check those boxes and we'll email you information about those different ministries, okay? Our hope for you is that you would plug into a local church. We believe in the local church, the ministry of the local church, and uh, plugging into a place where you can grow and where you can use your gifts to help others grow. And so there's a lot of great churches in Fort Collins, Northern Colorado, wonderful churches doing wonderful things uh, for the kingdom of God. We just want you to be in one of those. If it's Timberline, great. Let us help you get plugged in, okay? A um, couple things just to make you aware of. As usual, uh, on the inside of your bulletin, you will see... Uh, an insert that lists all the tables that are out in the mall. Glance at that insert. If there's ministries there you have questions about or you want to get connected, you want to sign up, whatever the case may be, stop by those tables before you leave and there'll be people there who can answer your questions, help you get connected. Our website, TimberlineChurch.org, as always has all of our information. A couple of uh, other things to make you aware of, at the 1130 service, so at our next service time slot in the South Auditorium, we're having our second, what, we, what we're calling Go Team meetings, and, and these are the people, a core of people who are committing themselves to make Timberline Windsor their home church. Uh, we are launching a satellite location that will be a video venue in Windsor, and the building that we are, are building out is coming along really well. We, we believe leave in the next couple of months, we're going to be able to launch uh, services over there, but they're already meeting. And so if you have an interest of getting involved, making that your home church, um, come at 1130, just stay, go to the cafe, get a bagel, that'll get you through, and then go at 1130 for the Go Team meeting and some great things are happening there. Pastor Rez is going to be talking about the vision and the future there. Okay, also tonight is Summit, and Summit is a very important part of what we do around here. If you are new to Timberline Church, Summit is the place where you can learn about who we are, what we value, what we believe, and, and what we believe God's called us to do in this community. And so it goes from 5 to about 7.30 tonight, and, and then we feed you. Okay, and so uh, if you get here between 4.30, 4.45, we'll give you a notebook. And uh, Pastor Derry, our senior pastor, and his wife, Bonnie, teach Summit One. They'll uh, let you know what Timberline's about. And then if you've already been to Summit One, uh, Summit Two and Summit Three are going on at the same time. We provide child care. So I hope you can come out tonight and be a part of Summit, okay? Well, we are in a series uh, that, that we have called The Facts of Life, and it is a series that is going through uh, the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, most scholars agree, was written by Solomon, known to be the wisest man to ever live, and, and it's, it really records what Solomon has observed and experienced uh, about life under the sun. And largely, life that has been dependent upon human wisdom and the conclusions that he's come to by that observation and by his own experience. And it's been a challenging book to navigate through. Charles Swindoll, who is a, a great Bible teacher and author, says this about Ecclesiastes and about Solomon. Listen to what he says. He says, so many of Solomon's ideas and observations are horizontal musings the bitter, barren, boring side of life seen through disillusioned eyes. We've been seeing that as we've walked through so far. But on a few rare occasions, the man breaks out of his cynical syndrome 
At those times, his comments contain a remarkable vertical perspective that scrapes away the veneer of empty religion and takes us back to the bedrock of a meaningful relationship with the living Lord. And so today we come to chapter 5 in Ecclesiastes, and chapter 5 is one of those moments where Solomon scrapes away the veneer of empty religion and takes us back to the bedrock of a meaningful relationship with our living God. Some scholars say that the book of Ecclesiastes is broken into two parts, and the second part begins at chapter 5. And part of the reason they say that is because Solomon addresses the readers differently in chapter 5. So far in the first four chapters, we have heard of his observances, his experiences, and those conclusions he's drawn. But in chapter 5, he begins to address the reader in second person. In other words, he begins to speak directly to the reader and begins to challenge and and give admonitions to the reader. It becomes much more practical in chapter 5. And so that's where we are today. I want us to focus on the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, turn there. If not, you can follow along on the screen. Let's look at it together. Here's what Solomon writes. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You are on earth. So let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. The King James Version, that translation, translates that last phrase as, but fear God. I want to focus our attention today. We've called the message, the heart of true worship. And I want to focus our attention on that last phrase because I believe it gets really to the heart of true worship. So the first thing in your outline there, if you're filling in the blanks, the first one is standing in awe of God. The heart of true worship is really about standing in awe of God. But what is that? What does that mean? Well, let me be honest with you. I... I have a reaction that happens inside of me when I read passages like the one we just read from Ecclesiastes 5. And that reaction was shaped by my past. The older I get, the more I'm learning how my past has shaped me in certain ways, both good and bad. And and in ways that I don't even fully recognize until I continue to grow and I come face to face with, oh, that was shaped when when I was young. And that's true of all of us. Whether we realize it or not, our past has shaped us, both for the good and for the bad. One of the ways that my past shaped me is when I was a kid, I grew up in a church culture where where I believed, I had the idea, this idea about God, that God was scary. 
All right? In fact, I would, I would say my view of God was scary God. Okay? I don't know if you grew up that way, but I had the idea that God was always angry and maybe even a little bit unstable. That was my view of God. It was like, it doesn't take much to tick him off. And I had a long list of the stuff that ticked him off, but sometimes there were things on that list that I didn't know about, and I heard, oh, that ticked him off too. And when he got ticked off, he just kind of freaked out on everybody. That was my view of God. He was the God who dangled you over hell on a rotten stick, and if you messed up, kind of yo-yoed you a little bit just to make sure you're paying attention, okay? And so, but as I grew, and I'm not saying that's what I was taught, it was just the perception I had of God. And so as I grew and as I matured, I began to discover that God loved me, that he really loved me. And I began to understand something called grace. This idea of unmerited favor. Favor that God showed me even though I didn't deserve it. That's what that means. And I began to realize that there wasn't anything I could do that would make God love me more than he loves me right now. And there really wasn't anything I could do that would make God love me less than he loves me right now. And that revelation was such a wonderful thing for me to discover that it created this reaction in me to passages like the one we just read. See, I don't, I don't like that Solomon says we need to guard our steps when we approach God. Because that, mean, that means watch out. Be careful. Think seriously and soberly about approaching God and the way you approach God. And that brings up images to me of, of scary God. That's what I think of there. Now here's, here's the challenge that, we fa- that I face and that I think the church in America faces and maybe beyond America. We have a tendency, there's a human tendency in us that when we have a bad experience, we react to that experience and our tendency is to react to the other extreme. I mean, it's like when you go to a restaurant and you eat something for dinner and shortly after that you get really sick. Okay, and your reaction is I will never eat at that restaurant again ever now It doesn't matter that you just actually got the flu. It had nothing to do with the restaurant It doesn't matter because your reaction is I you I mean you write off whole whole ethnic groups of I will never eat American food as long as I live because I got sick We react in an extreme Not a big deal when it comes to what we eat But it can be a very big deal when it comes to our view of God And so here's the danger. We react against scary God, and if we're not careful, we react to an extreme, and we create what I I just call buddy God, our buddy God. And you know buddy God. That's not a very good deed. But our buddy God, (laughs) I'm loving this cool little tool here, by the way. I just have to say that. Our buddy, here's buddy God. Buddy God is the idea that God is really, he's really kind of like me. He's, he's, he's really, uh, he's kind of a peer, only better. He's like the, the big buddy in the sky, but he's got superpowers like, like omnipresence and omniscience, and he's omnipotent, and that's a cool thing to have a friend who has superpowers like that. But, but really, he's kind of like me. He's just a little bit better than me. And, and very quickly, when that becomes our view of God, and we would probably wouldn't say it that way, but when that becomes our view of God, it leads to us creating and fashioning God in our image, the way we think God should be, as opposed to realizing that I'm created, I'm created by God in his image. And that leads to all sorts of other faulty perceptions of God. See, since he's little more than a peer to me, then, then, then maybe I just need to help him understand some things. I can manipulate him and coerce him to see things my way because, you know, the Bible wasn't written, you know, like today. And so things are different and God may need a little bit of information. 
as, as though, you know, can I just tell you, God, you've never said anything to God, and God has responded by saying, oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> never said that. Never said that. But sometimes we think that, the way that we approach God. And, and then we take it a step further. If he's just a little more than a peer, he's got some superpowers, but he's kind of a lot like me, then the reality is when God speaks to me, whether it's through his spirit, through a message in a gathering like this, or whether it's through reading his word, when God speaks to me, then my responsibility is to take that under advisement and think, well, I'll consider that, God, you know, because, you know, this was written a long time ago and they didn't have, you know, stock markets and business wasn't like it was today. And, you know, the reality is in our culture, you have to lie in order to get ahead. So I know, God, what you say, and that's great for you, but it doesn't really work for me. And so we kind of evaluate whether or not what God has to say really is relevant to my life. See, that's the, that's the other reaction if we're not careful. Now, most of us would never put it that bluntly, but I wonder, are there times when our behavior actually reinforces that perspective? And I would suggest that in the American church, there's a big danger of reacting to scary God by moving over to this idea of buddy God. And so the reality is, which one of these is right? I would say neither one of these is the picture that is painted in scripture of who God is and how we are to approach God. So how are we to approach God? What is Solomon talking about when he says, guard your steps? Well, I think I can illustrate it best by going to something Jesus said a few thousand years later, okay? On our Wednesday nights, we have a Wednesday night service in here uh, for adults. It's a, uh, we have children's ministry going on as well, but we have a, a study in here where we are going through the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. We're unpacking that line by line, that prayer. What does it say? And we've, we've called the series Recalibrating Your Life uh, uh, by the Lord's Prayer because the Lord's Prayer actually recalibrates our life. It recenters us if, if we really understand what the Lord's Prayer is saying. And, and so when I think about the Lord's Prayer, the way Jesus taught us to pray, think about this. He says, when you pray, pray like this. And how does he start the prayer? Our Father. I like that way of approaching God, don't you? Our Father. That says to me that the God of creation chose me to be his child. He didn't just get stuck with me. He adopted me. He chose me to be his own. When I pray our Father, that's about relationship. That's about intimacy. And I hear that, and I think I like that better than... So I don't think of guard your steps, watch out, be careful. However... Jesus hasn't finished with the prayer yet, right? He's just begun. So he follows up saying, our father, intimacy, God's great love, with saying, who art in heaven? Oh, well, that sounds familiar. Because Solomon said, God is in heaven, you are on earth, so let your words be few. Translation, God is God, you are not. So shut up. That's my version. It's not the polite version. <laughs> so, so I'm thinking, okay, that sounds similar to, to what Jesus is saying. Our Father, yes, intimacy, awesome, but not like me, not like earthly father. He, he's of a different realm. So what Solomon and Jesus both are saying is that we are not the same. God is not like me. He's not just a better version of me, of a human being. He's not of this world. He's altogether different. His ways are not just different than mine. They're higher and better than mine. I'm created. He has always been. There's no comparison 
to God. There's no human being that even comes close to comparing to God. There's no created being that comes close to comparing to God. The psalmist David wrote this in Psalm 145. He said, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. The prophet Isaiah said, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired and weary. And his understanding, no one can fathom. God is not like me. He's not like you. He's other world. He, he, he's something completely different, something completely greater. And one of the primary ways that he's different from me and different from you is what Jesus addresses in the next line of the prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, he says, hallowed be thy name. That word hallowed means may your name be holy. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, what I'm really praying is may my actions and my words and my thoughts and my very life declare your holiness. Because God is altogether infinitely holy and I am sinful. Very different. He's completely holy. And so there it is, right in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. In the very first breath of this prayer, Jesus gives us this picture of two things. He gives us a picture of love and of holiness. There they are, love and holiness. We are humbled by his love, and we are sobered by his holiness. And we see both in the opening part of that prayer. We live in the tension of holiness, of his love, intimacy, and holiness, his righteousness. So he's neither scary God who demands that we appease him or he's going to freak out on us, nor is he our big buddy in the sky with superpowers. He is the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present creator of the universe who has chosen to adopt us as his children. And the price of that adoption was an indescribable sacrifice in giving his own son, Jesus, to die because he's holy and we are not, and the only way we could be reconciled is a sacrifice of his son, Jesus, on a cross. So where we see his love and his holiness come together in the most graphic way in full force is in the cross. When we see the cross, we see his love and we see his holiness. And the two come together, and it should cause us to stand in awe of him. Then Jesus teaches us in his prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Then he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So here's, here's the picture, all right? We are humbled by his love. We are sobered by his holiness, so we respond by surrendering to his will. We surrender to, humbled by his love, sobered by his holiness, surrendered to his will. That is, in effect, what Solomon is teaching us, and he sums it all up in the simple statement, stand in awe of God. There are three areas that I would suggest Solomon addresses that relate to standing in awe of God. The first one, if you're taking notes, is our attitude. Our attitude. And basically, that's what we've been talking about so far in this message. 
our attitude towards God, our attitude in approaching God, our view and our perspective of who God is. We are to stand in awe of him because he is God, he is in heaven, and we are human and we are on earth. He is the creator, we are the created. And so we stand in awe, our attitude towards him is awe. All right, the second area that Solomon Solomon addresses is our words. Our words are a part of standing in awe of him. He says things like, draw near to listen. Don't be quick with your mouth. Let your words be few. I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor, we took a group of teenagers to a camp. It wasn't, it wasn't a normal camp with lots of recreation. It was a camp designed specifically for teenagers who wanted to, to pursue God and practice the disciplines of Christian faith at a camp. And so one afternoon, we, we uh, set aside like four hours where all the students as well as the leaders, we were to go find a place with a Bible and a journal and, and, and take a vow of silence for about four hours. No words, couldn't speak, couldn't say a word. Now, how many of you know that, that some people have a higher quota for words in a day than others? Have you noticed that? I have a low quota for words. I know it's hard to believe when I'm up here speaking. You're thinking, why don't you let us out early then? I understand that, all right? But normally, like I don't like to talk on the phone. I just don't have, I don't need to get a whole lot of words in. Other people do. But even for me, after about an hour, I was dying. It's like I just, I'm, I'm going to explode because your mind races and you can't, you can't talk and, and you're supposed to be completely silent so I can't even like sing along. I don't have an iPod. Of course, back then they didn't have iPods, but I don't, I mean, it's just quiet and it's just me and my thoughts and God and he starts penetrating those things and I start seeing myself in, in, in the things in me that need to change. It was just this incredible experience to let my words be few, to close my mouth and to just stand in awe of God and listen. Solomon says that's an appropriate response when we approach God. He says something interesting. He says, as a dream comes when, when, we have, when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. What does that mean? Have you ever been going through something in your life really stressful? Whatever it is, maybe a situation at work, maybe something at home, whatever it might be, and it's consuming your thoughts and it's consuming you so much that you actually start dreaming about it at night. Have you ever had that happen? And you're actually dreaming about work or you're dreaming about a relationship or whatever it might be. That's kind of the idea here. He says when there's many cares, it produces dreams about it. And he says in the same way, when we choose to approach God flippantly with many words that come from our own wisdom, our words to him actually begin to shape the speech of a fool. That's what Solomon says. Now, this isn't saying that we shouldn't pray very much. It's not saying that God gets kind of bored with all of our praying and so enough already, don't use so many words. It's not saying that. It's not about the quantity of our words. It's more about the content of our words. It's more about the position of our heart because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever's in here is eventually going to come out here. Okay? And so this is about recognizing that God is in heaven, we are on earth, and our primary response should be to stand in awe of him, not lecture him on what we think he needs to do. 
Now, this doesn't mean we can't be honest with God and out of desperation. I know uh, God knows our heart anyway. And I'm an advocate of letting him see what's in my heart. But whatever it is that's in my heart, it has to lead me to a place where I recognize, even if I don't understand it, that God is in heaven and I am on earth and I will stand in awe of him even when I don't understand it. Because his ways are above mine. His understanding I can't even fathom. This is about recognizing the sovereignty of God. That he is God and we are not. So listening becomes better than talking. Especially when our talking is really nothing more than the sacrifice of fools, which I believe what Solomon is talking about here is is just our own foolish wisdom that's predicated upon a faulty view of who God really is. So our words, our attitude, our words, and then finally, Solomon speaks to our commitments. Our commitments. Solomon says, when you make a vow to God, fulfill it. Keep it. Right away. Don't delay. Keep it. I think it was Mother Teresa who said, delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Solomon would agree with that. Have you, ever, have you ever made a deal with God? Have you ever done that? Never. Give me a break. I know you have, okay? <laughs> Let me give you an example. You're driving down College Avenue. You whiz by a police car going about 15 miles an hour over the speed limit, and all of a sudden you start cutting deals. You start, oh, God, if you just let him be distracted, please don't let him see me. And God, if you do, I can't afford a ticket, and I will go to the ends of the earth and proclaim your name. Just don't <laughs> let me get a ticket. You know? Or students, have you ever said, oh God, please help me pass this test I didn't study for. And I promise I will study for every test for the rest of my life. Just get me through this one, right? Sometimes it's, a, it's more serious in nature. God, if you just get me out of this jam, if you just get me out of this jam, I'll never get drunk again. Deals, cut deals. You know what Solomon is saying? God takes our commitments seriously. We don't approach him flippantly because he's not our big buddy in the sky. He's God. Commitments we make, he takes seriously. Last Wednesday night, we had an awesome time in here with, we had a special guest by the name of John Gaswanga. He was uh, born in a refugee camp in Uganda because his family fled from Rwanda due to the genocide and the killings that were going on there. He, as you can imagine, being a refugee in Uganda, grew up extremely poor, lived in a, in a mud house, and he, he stepped out of his house one day, and he wanted, at 10 years old, he wanted desperately to go to school, desperately to have an education. But tuition to go to school was $20 for the year, and his mom couldn't afford it. His dad was in Rwanda fighting against the genocide. His mom could not afford it, could not afford to go to school. And so in that moment, as a 10-year-old boy, he made a deal with God. He said it's the first time that God became more than just a word to him. And he cut a deal with God. He said, God, if you will allow me to have an education, I will spend the rest of my life serving the poor in your world. That day, just a little bit after that prayer, a Ugandan man who worked with World Vision came to their house and announced to his mom that, that he had been sponsored to go to school, and he got to go to school, sponsored by someone, someone in, in America or somewhere that, that took a sponsorship, and for whatever it was, $30, $35 a month, wrote the check every month, so he got to go to school, got an education. As he grew older, he went to college, and as he went to college, he became disillusioned with God. 
because of what was happening in his homeland in Rwanda. In 90 days, almost a million people were slaughtered. His father was killed in all of that. And he grew disillusioned. God, why did this happen? How could this happen? How could you let this happen? How, why am I an orphan? All in all these questions. And while he's in college, he's had a break and he went jogging out in the forest. As he's jogging in the forest, he came to a place where the sun was just coming over the trees and it just hit the spot in a beautiful way. It was overwhelming, the beauty of it all. And he heard birds singing and he stopped right there and he began to weep. And in that moment, God brought him back to when he was 10, year old, 10 years old and he made a promise to God. He had forgotten. He had walked away from that promise. And God reminded him because God took the promise of a 10-year-old boy seriously. And that moment changed the whole trajectory of his life where he began to devote his life to caring for the poor in Rwanda. Every time you buy a cup of coffee in our cafe, every single time, or you buy a bag of coffee beans from our cafe... It is all Equal World Coffee, which is an organization that is a part of what John is involved in. It helps people in Rwanda directly every single time. We told that Wednesday night, and we sold out of all the coffee beans. And so if you want to buy more beans, we're going to get some more, okay? But we sold out. And so, because every time, and why is that? Because a 10-year-old boy made a commitment to God, and years later, though disillusioned with God, God reminded him of that commitment and said, I took that seriously. That's part of standing in awe of God. He takes our commitments seriously. Let me just say this as a side note. Not only our commitments to him, but our commitments to others before him. Like marriage vows, for instance. It may not matter much to the culture in which we live, but it matters to God. He takes our commitments seriously, and that's part of standing in awe of him. So let's wrap this up. The heart of true worship, to be humbled by his love, to be sobered by his holiness, and to be surrendered to his will. Therefore, Solomon said, stand in awe of God. You know, the last half of chapter 5 talks about wealth talks about the pitfalls of wealth and our attitude towards wealth. When I originally was crafting this message, I was going to try to hit the whole chapter and, and just move through it quickly. And the longer I spent on this idea of standing in awe of God, the more I felt like we can't rush through this. And then it dawned on me that if we get that part right, our attitude towards wealth will be right. If we get that part right, our attitudes towards relationships, towards work, towards everything else in our life. Jesus said, if you will seek first his kingdom, his rule, his reign over you, and his righteousness, then all these other things will be added as well. If we get our worship right. Paul summed it up this way. He said, in view of God's mercy, in view of the cross, humbled by his love, sobered by his holiness. In view of that, sur submit your bodies, surrender your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. That is your spiritual act of worship. That's how Paul put it, standing in awe of him. So we're gonna close our time here in just a moment before we receive our offering together. We are going to close by doing something that we don't do very much in the culture in which we live. Psalm chapter 46 says this very simple statement, be still, and know that I am God. We're going to take just a few moments. We're just going to be still. No music, no words. 
We're just going to be still. It might help if you close your eyes so there's no distractions. And we're just going to be still. And I want you to let God speak to you about being humbled by his love, sobered by his holiness, and surrendered to his will. So let's just be still for a moment. God, we ask you today to forgive us for the times in our lives where we have attempted to fashion you after our own image rather than acknowledge that we are created by you in your image. And though that image is marred by sin, the aim of our life is to reflect your image to the world in which we live. Help us understand what it means to stand in awe of you. To truly be humbled by your indescribable love that you would sacrifice all that you have for us is overwhelming. And to also be sobered by the reality of your holiness. And to respond to that truth of the cross by taking up our own cross, which is to surrender fully to your will. Teach us, Lord, to truly walk in a heart of worship before you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.